Hey everyone, we're back this week with our new health series called Hormone Happy Hour that I do with Kea Perowit, my dear co-host on the series and co-founder in our business, Bia Wellness. And every Wednesday, Hormone Happy Hour will feature an in-depth interview with a leading women's health expert. Each expert will teach you step-by-step how to eat, think, and move in a way that is designed to help you feel great and create an abundance of energy in your life so you can build your own empire. Now let's jump into this week's episode. I hope you enjoy it. Today's episode is full of so many valuable tips and tricks for anybody who is struggling with heavy menstrual periods, cramping, sleep issues, blood sugar issues, energy issues, so many different things. And it really kind of got me thinking about my latest challenge, I guess you would call it, which is that I was struggling with sleep for quite a bit since I moved into my new house and I was trying to figure it out. I thought, okay, maybe it's because I moved somewhere, somewhere new. And really what it was is that I was spending probably about 30 minutes before I actually closed my eyes scrolling on TikTok and then having crazy dreams about what I had just watched. Yeah. (laughs) Which I'm just being real because I know so many people do it that it might feel like it's a really good way to unwind, but it is not. It was totally messing with my nervous system. I ended up seeing content that just was alarming or scary or just kind of got me thinking, got my wheels turning, and it was leading to really disruptive sleep. So I was in between books. I didn't have a good book to read, which is a great way to actually unwind at the end of the day. And I thought, let me just switch it up. If I want to watch something, I'll put on my blue light blockers and let me watch something that's just more chill and that actually doesn't rile me up or get my nervous system all jacked up. So I started to actually watch like cooking shows before I went to bed, baking shows or just You know, there's, I think, something called Chef's Table on Netflix and just things that are very calming, very soft, just have a nice vibe to them, maybe some good music. And I have my blue blockers on, so that helps with the artificial light exposure. And my sleep has improved so much. I actually kind of went to bed with more chill thoughts, which was really nice. And so if you don't want to give up screen time completely, that's just the phase of your life that you're in right now. I would really encourage you to watch something that doesn't really activate the body too much. So that's just a little tip because we talk so much about sleep in this episode. I just wanted to share my journey with that recently. And another thing we talk about is the importance of hydration. And Yasmin, you shared a really cool story that I'd love for you to talk about here. Yeah, I know yesterday we were talking about we had meetings and I was feeling a little bit tired. I usually have a sleep ritual, which I talk about on the podcast today with Dr. Saru. And I was not following it for some reason. I was just like working late. I had energy. My husband was up. And of course, because of all of that and being in front of my computer talking about screens, I definitely didn't sleep well. So it was a good reminder for me. And then I was feeling a little just more fatigued yesterday and I got home I went out for an appointment I got home around four and I was like hmm I'm quite thirsty and I literally chugged like this massive bottle of water and I put electrolytes in it and I was like oh my gosh was I dehydrated all day and it sounds so silly and I was drinking water throughout the day but I think I was extra dehydrated and speaking with Saru on this week's episode hydration is so key and I know Kea for you you've mentioned sometimes where you feel like you might need to go get a coffee in the afternoon you also have felt pretty like energy drinking water, right? Yes. There are so many times where I think I need caffeine or a little pick-me-up, maybe some chocolate, some green tea. And I would encourage anybody who feels 
feels that way in the afternoon to just check in with your body because it might just be that you're straight up dehydrated. So sometimes just drinking a glass of water will perk me back up and I'll have energy again. And it's really interesting how Dr. Saru explains in this episode how so many problems can actually be solved by just simply hydrating our bodies, right? It's like all about the basics. So we dive into all of this and so much more in this week's episode. And we're really excited to have Dr. Saru Bala here with us this week. She's a licensed naturopathic doctor with a degree from Bastyr University in Seattle, Washington. And prior to attending medical school, she received her bachelor's degree in neurobiology from the University of Texas at Austin. She's done extra training in the areas of women's health and naturopathic endocrinology. And currently, her primary focus is on managing chronic hormonal issues such as PMS, period pain, heavy bleeding, fibroids, endometriosis, Hashimoto's fertility, and other women's hormonal health concerns. Can I love her Instagram? You can find her at, at Dr. Sarubala, where she makes hilarious and such informative content about women's health. We highly, highly recommend it. Now let's get into this week's episode. Dr. Saru, we have so many women at BIA who talk so much about heavy periods, and I feel like the women fall into two camps. Either they're, they know they have a heavy period, but they have no idea why and what to do about it, or they fall into the other camp of they might not even be aware of what they're going through and it being a heavy period and what they should do. So we love your advice. Can I are obviously big fans of you. So I'd love to start off with this. You know, what classifies a heavy period and what causes it? Yeah, so technically with a heavy period, period, it's about the amount that you're bleeding. So anything more than 80 milliliters is considered a heavy bleed. But who is really measuring how much they're bleeding in milliliters? Probably nobody. <laughs> and now we just got all of those um, studies showing that tampons were uh, like their absorbencies were measured with water and not actual blood. And so that's not super accurate either as far as how much how many tampons you go through, etc. So there's a few other ways that I like to consider how heavy is um, your period. So the first one is if you're bleeding through your products more than every hour or even every two hours, like if you feel like you're constantly having to switch and cycle through your pads and your tampons or your cups, that is usually a sign that your bleeding is a little bit too heavy. Or if you're doubling up on your products. So if you're wearing a pad and a tampon because you're afraid that you're gonna leak through or you know that you will, that's usually a pretty heavy period. If you're waking up in the middle of the night to change your products, if your clots are bigger than the size of a quarter, or if your bleeding is lasting more than seven days, any of those are a sign that you might be having a heavy period and not even realize it. Because I do have a lot of women who have all these signs and they're like, oh, well, my doctor told me that was normal and that's just what a period is like. And I wanna say that is not true. Mm -hmm. I love it. And what do you think really causes women who have heavy periods? And every it's so interesting because everything you are listing, I'm like, my gosh, there's a handful of friends and women I know who completely fall into that bucket and we all think it's normal. So what do you think is really driving more women to have these quote unquote heavier periods? So a lot of the times what I see is that estrogen dominance, right? Estrogen is the main driver of building that uterine lining and getting it to get thicker and thicker. And the more lining you have to shed, the longer and heavier your periods are going to be because that's what your period is, right? It's the shedding of that uterine lining. And so when we have too much estrogen, when that estrogen isn't getting out of our body effectively, that starts to build up that lining. It also starts to stimulate other things. So if you have things like cysts or polyps or fibroids or any of that, uh, or like fibrocystic breasts, like the, that um, buildup of that tissue anywhere in your body that we're seeing is related to estrogen, 
that's because your estrogen is not effectively getting eliminated. So that's a huge factor of what I work on with women is getting rid of that estrogen. And once we can balance that estrogen and have a healthy level of estrogen, not only in your follicular phase, but also in your luteal phase, we see that that bleeding goes down, those PMS symptoms go down, your fibroids may even shrink or disappear. So I have seen that happen and it is exciting to know there are a lot of other options because so many women are told birth control, or ablation or hysterectomy, especially for the heavy bleeding. And I hate, hate, hate seeing that those are the only options. Like just get your entire uterus removed. How is that our only option? Yeah, absolutely. So estrogen dominance is something that I've dealt with personally in my life. And I have, uh, you know, a series of women in my life who have had estrogen dominant related cancers and stuff. So it's very present in my mind constantly. I would say overall, you know, I'm doing everything or, you know, now I'm doing everything that I can, but sometimes these symptoms of estrogen dominance still come up. So I'm curious for anybody who's listening to this, who feels like kind of sounds like me, what are some of the causes of estrogen dominance? So the two biggest things that I see are your gut is a hundred percent affecting that. And most often women who have issues with estrogen dominance, especially if you have the fibroids and the heavy bleeding, those symptoms of it, I often see that you have issues with your gut, whether you're not pooping every day or that the poop is not like it, you're not getting a full evacuation or you have some gas or bloating on a regular basis. You have some kind of gut issues that are leading to ineffective elimination of that estrogen from your gut. So that's the number one thing I always start with is if you have any sort of gut issues, which who doesn't these days, right? Most of us have some kind of gut issues going on. Um, we always start there because that is one of the biggest ways that we eliminate. And if we can get your gut working well, if we can get you pooping every day and it's a full evacuation and you feel empty and you feel good and you don't feel gassy and bloated after you eat, we are going to see a lot more effective elimination of those hormones, particularly estrogen. And we start to see that your symptoms go away. You feel more energetic. You're not bleeding as heavy. Those mood swings go away. That acne clears up all of those pieces. You know, on your social, Saru, you uh, had this reel that said, and I was cracking up because you're like, people who take probiotics, like, yeah, they're good for you, but they think that's like the magic pill for gut issues. So tell me more about, you know, your thoughts on probiotics and maybe some other nutritional or supplemental tips that you would recommend for anyone who's listening, who's like, all right, I'm dealing with gut issues and everything that she's kind of walking through right now. Yeah. So with probiotics, I love them. They can be really helpful when we use them correctly and when we use them in the right time and place, right? Probiotics are not something that I blindly give to anyone that has gut issues because they're not going to be hitting the root cause. Why do you have gut issues? Why are you having loose stools? Why are you having that urgency? Why are you having crampy diarrhea? Why are you having food that is undigested? Why are you having all of these symptoms? It's not because you're lacking in probiotics necessarily. So a lot of times it's because you don't have, uh, you're not feeding the bacteria that is already in your gut. So what is a probiotic? A probiotic is that good bacteria that we're looking for in our gut. If yours is low, yes, adding in a probiotic can help with that. But if you're also not feeding that, you're just planting seeds and not watering them. So it's kind of like you're just killing the plant already. Instead of just keeping instead of putting more and planting more seeds let's use the ones that we already have and feed those let's put some fertilizer in there so we really need to figure out how you can get more fiber and nutrients to feed that bacteria that is already there and once you're good at doing that and you still need some support then when we add in a probiotic you're actually feeding that probiotic and helping to keep it there instead of just 
endlessly taking probiotics for the rest of your life and not really seeing huge changes. Absolutely. I'd love to talk about the connection between stress and our gut health because I noticed some of my constipated girlies are the most stressed out girlies out there. (laughs) And um, you had a really good post, I think, on your social where you talked about sometimes we don't connect being stuck in fight or flight with bloating. So can you talk about this just overall connection between stress and gut health? Absolutely. Stress. So a lot of the times for people who aren't familiar with that fight or flight sympathetic state, what happens is when we have any kind of stressor that whatever we perceive as stress, we get into that fight or flight, right? Our body is trying to get us out of that situation. So what does it do? It shunts all of our blood flow to our muscles and our brain to either fight or flight. And that means less blood flow to all of your organs, including your gut. So your body's priority is not digestion. It's not food. It's getting you out of that situation. So you're either using your muscles to run away or you're using your brain to figure out how you can get out of that situation or fighting. So that is what your body is doing. You are not going to sit there and prioritize secreting digestive enzymes and stomach acid and breaking down your food in that, in that moment. And a lot of us aren't necessarily in a place where we actually have to fight or flight. It is just our natural state these days of, I have a meeting that's stressing me out because of our current mental state and everything going on in the world. So we wake up, we check our phones, we're immediately in that fight or flight. And then we're rushing around getting ready. We're getting our kids ready for school. We're getting ourselves ready for work. And then we rush out the door and we might be eating something to go or sipping on something while we're driving. And we're in that state then we're in that state. We're in that sympathetic state while you're driving, while you're eating. Do you really think that your body is prioritizing blood flow to your gut, digestive enzymes to help break down that food? No, you're driving. Your health, your body is, is constantly scanning the road for, am I okay? Am I safe to drive? Um, and then you get to work, you have a meeting, you're checking your emails. Again, you're constantly in this sympathetic state. We never do anything to pull ourselves out of that sympathetic state. And then we eat again, we eat lunch. And then you get to the end of the day, you come home, you finally relax. All of your your gut is is starting to kind of turn on again. That blood flow is coming in. You sit on the couch, you watch TV, you're relaxing, whatever you're doing. And you're like, oh, all this food that I've eaten all day is just sitting in there feeling undigested because it is. It didn't digest. It's just sitting in there from earlier in the day because your body and your mind were prioritizing all these other things to get out of that stress. And so a lot of people tell me that they have gas and bloating and they feel it the most at the end of the day. And that is a huge red flag to me that you are not getting out of that sympathetic state while you're eating or even just at any moments throughout the day to help your body with digestion. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. In 2020, I was struggling with some debilitating health stuff. I just got off birth control and suddenly I had acne, mood swings, breast tenderness, and really painful periods. I tried so many things, but the one thing that worked was something called seed cycling. I know you're probably thinking, seed cycling? What the heck is that? It's a natural way to support your hormones using four specific seeds throughout your cycle. The challenge is that seed cycling can be a little complicated to do and kind of time consuming. So I decided to make an organic seed cycling product that is so easy to use. We make it every 
effortless for anyone to get started today. It's called Bia, and it's a super easy way to add something powerful to your diet to support your hormones, regulate your cycle, and bring back balance. To learn more about Bia and join our community with thousands of incredible women all over the world, go to BiaWellness.com, and that's spelled B-E-E-Y-A Wellness.com. And check out the show notes for our promo code to get $10 off your first purchase. Thanks so much for listening, and now let's get back to today's episode. So what are some more low-hanging fruit options when it comes to managing our stress response? Because let's be real, it's not easy yeah. to get out of that. Like no. I I know the importance of it and still I get caught up in it, you know, even day to day. So what are some like very practical things that are maybe not as time consuming as like you have to go to an ashram and just like sort out your whole life. Like what are some things we can do every day to really manage the stress response? I really, and everyone's thing is going to be different. For me personally, I need my morning time to be able to figure out, first of all, what am I going to eat for breakfast? And then actually just make it and sit down and eat it. Because if I don't get that, that just derails my whole day. If I start my day out with chaos, the rest of the day is going to be chaos. So I need that morning time to kind of um, do my journal, figure out what I'm eating, get that meal ready, and then maybe like pack my daughter's lunch. So things in the morning are slow for me so that I can have that time to figure out what my day is. So that might not be the case for somebody else. That might be, looks like you take five minutes to just sit down and breathe before you eat, or you just take three small deep breaths, or you're just even sitting down to eat because a lot of us aren't doing that. So it might be something as simple as I make sure I sit down to eat when I'm eating, or I take a couple of breaths before I eat, or I make sure I'm not at least driving while I'm eating. You know, it, however your day looks, just scaling it back one at a time from where it is now to where you want to be. And it may not be you going all the way from I'm rushing my kids out the door and myself out the door to make it a drop off on time and then go to work on time to I wake up at 5 a.m. and I cook myself a three course breakfast and sit down and eat before the kids are like that may not be your reality, but it's at least I'm sitting down to eat for 10 minutes before I go and drive to work. So something to slow down while you're eating to let your brain and your nervous system know you're not fighting, you're not flighting, you have this moment to be able to secrete some digestive enzymes to help digest your food. I love this conversation. Yeah, I love this because I've been thinking about it a lot lately for myself. And I think a big part of it is the self-evaluation piece of, are you addicted to this like fight or flight state, right? Because for me, I'm like, oh, I don't have the time and this and I want to do all this stuff. But the idea, the example you mentioned, which is, do you sit down to have a meal? There are so many times where I just want to take my meal and work, right? Because I'm addicted to that feeling of like doing more, being more and all of that. I want to be doing something constantly. So I think it's also a really good opportunity for people to say like, is it that I don't have the time or is it that I'm addicted to this feeling? Absolutely. I actually realized this after chatting with my therapist about it, that I come home and a lot of my work is on social media. A lot of my work, I'm, I'm on my phone a lot for what I do. And I didn't realize how much 
and any free time I had, I would pick up my phone and check my social media to see, do I have DMs? Do I have, you know, can I create this post, whatever it is. And I realize now, like anytime I pick up my phone, I'm like, is there something I actually need to be doing? Cause if not, what else can I do in my actual life right here, right now? And there's so much more. I'm like, Oh, look at all these, you know, things I can do around the house or let me play with my daughter. Let me talk to my husband instead of being so absorbed. And I have to work. I have to do more. I have to work. I have to do more. Cause there is always more work to be done. There was always more you can do and slowing down and stopping and even just realizing like, oh, I'm picking up my phone because I'm distracting myself versus I'm picking up my phone because I have something to do. hundred percent. I know I'm thinking about this a lot too. I feel like we're all dealing with this, but even for me, I think Sarah, one thing that you've said that has helped me a lot and listen, I'm trying to incorporate this daily and I'm actually wanting to test myself this week because the past few weeks for me personally have just been major fight or flight, even though I'm conscious of it, but I'm like, something needs to change. And the early mornings, at least for me to be a little bit slower is actually game changing. So it's like not booking meetings super early, no podcast super early and slowing down because to your point, like going, 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 I break every week and a half. And actually it was getting to a point where like it was every other day. And I was like, I can't live like this. Like, this is not who I am. I need to pause a little bit and take time. And, and like you said, there's always going to be more. Once you hit a certain level of business, then you go to the next level, right? The growth is always there. And I'm like, this is not a way to live. So just me reiterating any time that you can be a little slow to reflect, like I, I'm just going nonstop. Like it's just good for me because I know that something needs to change. And, you know, we all work on that and what works for us. And it's so interesting, Saru, because we talked to so many women at BIA who reach out and so many people are also seeing hormonal imbalances and no period or irregularities because of stress. So I know you talked about it and its impact to gut. And I'm sure you see so many clients and patients as well who have stress and it impacts their hormones. Maybe you can talk about that because I think we don't talk about it enough and it might be motivating for people to take a second and maybe be you know more mindful about their stress if they realize how it's impacting their hormones. Absolutely. I mean, I see it impacting so many things, right? You're stressed out. You're in that sympathetic state. You're not falling asleep easily. It's affecting your sleep or you're procrastinating because you don't want to go to sleep because you're addicted to your phone and you can't put it down. And then that's affecting your sleep quality. It's affecting your sleep time. It's affecting how you wake up in the morning. It's affecting your cortisol awakening response. One night of poor sleep is affecting your insulin levels and your insulin sensitivity the next day. So then you have, you know, chronic insulin and blood sugar issues, and that's affecting your hormones. That's affecting your ovulation. If you're not getting adequate sleep and recovery, that's affecting your progesterone levels. So if you're having trouble getting pregnant and your progesterone levels are just chronically low, we see your sleep and your cortisol patterns and your, and your sympathetic versus parasympathetic state. All of these are affecting your your hormones in so many different ways. So it's not just digestion. Your digestion is also impacting your hormones, which is impacted by stress. So it's so many multifactorial ways that stress is affecting your body, your hormones, your energy, just all of you. I mean, you said something that I know Kay and I are so passionate about uh, is sleep. What do you see, you know, if someone's listening right now and they're like, gosh, I'm not sleeping well. And then you have a cascade of issues. Exactly what, like what you said, the next day is tough. You're more insulin resistant. It's just like a recipe for disaster. So with your patients, you know, maybe what are some of the top three things or a few things that you see actually do help women kind of have a more restful night's sleep? Absolutely. So the first thing I always tell people is, keep your 
your area, keep your, your home as dark as possible, at least one to two hours before bed, because we need that melatonin production to turn off the cortisol production. And how do we make melatonin in response to darkness? So if you are sitting with a bunch of lights on in your house in front of a screen with the TV and your phone in front of your face, and you have so many lights on around you, you're not making melatonin. So your cortisol is going to stay active even at 8 p.m., at 9 p.m., at 10 p.m. You're going to have a hard time falling asleep because you're not in that that rested parasympathetic state. So just turning off the lights, sitting in really low lights, um, lights that are below eye level can make all of the difference for your melatonin. So that's the number one thing I tell people. Let your body do the work. Just help facilitate it. And then the next thing would be to, and this is the hardest one for everyone, is put down your screen for a little bit, right? How often are you bringing your screen with you into bed? How many people have a TV in their bedroom? How many people are just sitting there in front of stimulation up until the second they fall asleep? And you are falling asleep out of exhaustion at that point, not because you wound down, got into a parasympathetic state and then fell asleep. And so if you're falling asleep in a parasympathetic state versus in that sympathetic state, you're going to fall asleep more easily. You're going to stay asleep through the night. Your recovery is going to be much better and you're going to feel more energetic when you wake up and you're going to be able to get that cortisol awakening response to help you feel awake in the morning. Whereas when you fall asleep because you're just exhausted and can't keep your eyes open, you're probably having restless sleep. You're probably waking up many times through the night, probably feeling like you're not getting restful sleep when you wake up in the morning and you're feeling draggy, you're tired, you're hitting snooze a thousand times because you're not actually getting that restoration that you're looking for from sleep. My thing is I'm getting, I'm in my bed for eight hours, whether that sleep quality is good or not. So I would rather the quality be good because I'm using that eight hours to sleep. I don't want to miss out on, on what I'm doing when I'm already there. So putting screens away for at least 30 minutes to an hour before you go to bed, doing non-stimulating activity. It also is a nice way of finding other things that you enjoy in life. I think screens can just take over so much of our lives that we forget that there were other things that we used to like before before we got sucked into watching endless videos. Um, so things like reading, what kind of books do you like? Is it fiction? Is it nonfiction? Like what kind of things do you enjoy? Um, you might find that you talk to your partner more. I definitely find that I connect with my husband a lot more um, when we're very diligent about putting our screens away because we're like, I guess, how was your day you know, <laughs> at that point? So it's a nice um, it's a nice way to connect with the people in your life as well. So those are, I would say, are the two main things to really prioritize. Yeah, and the screen thing is definitely the toughest I know firsthand. And my big thing now is like not consuming things at night that are going to make me feel unsafe, scared, or other people's drama, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't want all those things running around in your head before you go to sleep, which is like, if you're scrolling through TikTok or Instagram, you're going to see at least one or if not more of those things. Totally. So you mentioned sleep. We've talked about stress. What are some of other things, maybe the top three things that you see women do every day that is really impacting their hormones in a negative way? I would say the my number one thing is always not prioritizing sleep. That is the one thing that I work on so much with everyone on our first visit. It is always our bedtime routine. So that's going to be the number one thing um, because most of us aren't prioritizing sleep. We think it's just a secondary thing that happens in our life that we have to do when really 
if you get good quality sleep, that takes care of 99% of your problems. You wake up with more energy. You're not feeling as anxious. You have more motivation. That might make you move more throughout the day. Your blood sugar is more regulated. You might make better choices with your meals because you're not craving sugar for that energy burst. So just getting good sleep can make all of the difference for that. So I would say that's the number one thing. The number two thing is protein. So if you are not getting good sleep and your blood sugar is affected, then you really need to focus on that protein content because if you're not getting enough protein, um, you're gonna feel those crashes throughout the day. You're gonna feel really tired and sluggish. You're not gonna get that cortisol awakening response. You're also not gonna help your body get the recovery that it needs from a poor night of sleep. Um, and even if you get a good night of sleep, we still want that protein. So I think protein is something that's very underrated that a lot of women aren't getting enough of to make hormones, to sustain their hormones, to help with their blood sugar, to just feel good and have enough energy in a day. So that would be the number two thing that I like to see people do after prioritizing sleep. The third one would be hydration. A lot of us are not getting enough water. I work with a lot of women with constipation who have estrogen dominance and heavy bleeding and all of that. And a lot of them come to me and they tell me how much water they're drinking. And I'm like, this is a really simple thing that we can focus on is your water intake. And they start pooping better and their hormones start to change because water is the biggest way that we can hydrate our stools, that we can get more urine to eliminate our hormones. So poop and pee are both ways that we eliminate our hormones. And if you're not drinking enough water, you're not getting rid of those hormones. So it's a very simple way that we can um, focus on hormone elimination in our body. So hydration, really, really, really important. And I also see so many people where we're like, hey, let's work on your water intake and they come back. They're like, I have so much more energy just from drinking more water. So don't underestimate how something as simple as water and maybe adding some electrolytes to your water can be for your energy and your mood. I want to hit on that sleep piece Recently, I was talking to somebody who is um, an expert in PCOS, and what they mentioned is that there seems to be, in the research, a very common link between sleep apnea and PCOS. Have you noticed this? Because I think that a lot of young women would be like, sleep apnea, like, I don't have that. I'm only in my 20s or my 30s. But is this something that you've noticed at all in the patients that you work with, that there could potentially be maybe some sort of a sleep apnea going on. Oh, it's totally possible. I do see a lot of women more and more now who are younger, who are getting diagnosed with um, sleep apnea. Or it can also just start out as mouth breathing. And so I often recommend mouth taping for people who are having trouble sleeping, who feel like they're waking up a lot through the night or waking up really congested in the morning. I would say start with mouth taping. It can make all of the difference for if you're snoring, um, if you feel like you're not getting enough sleep through the night, if you're feeling really groggy when you wake up, you can get a little bit more oxygen this way. And you, if you do snore, it's a really great tool for that. Obviously, if you have sleep apnea, it's a little bit different. But for a lot of people, before it gets to the point of sleep apnea, if you, if you are just snoring through the night, start with mouth taping and see how that makes a difference. I know it made a huge difference for my husband um, who would snore a lot at night. And now it's very, very minimal. If he snores, it's because he had like dairy or alcohol or something. Yeah. And if there's somebody who's listening who's like, what the heck is mouth taping? Could you explain it? <laughs> it is. Ex it's, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just taping your mouth at night. And it doesn't have to be like serial killer duct tape mouth tape, but like it doesn't have to be that serious. And they have like little ones that are just a little X that goes over your lips. Um, just, it's more of just the cue to keep your mouth closed. Because a lot of us, our palate drops, our mouth opens, and we start breathing through our mouth at night instead of through our nose. We get less oxygen. We're not getting into that deeper sleep. And you might notice that if you are tracking something like your HRV or your sleep quality, you see that that 
that drops. And once you start mouth taping, you might see that that starts to increase. So it's really just the cue to keep your mouth closed. It's not necessarily taping your mouth shut so you can't breathe. It's just to keep your mouth closed and breathe through your nose. It's not, it's really when, not. When I first heard about it, my husband was telling me, he's like, you sleep with your mouth open. And I used to wake up feeling groggy and not a hundred percent. Like I've done a lot, everything you're saying, I've kind of incorporated in my sleep routine and I've nailed it. I remember he'd be like, why don't you try mouth taping? I'm like, are you nuts? Like, I'm going to feel claustrophobic. Like, what do you mean? And then I finally did it. I had such a great sleep. So now I'm like the religious one mouth taping every night. He barely does it. And I'm like telling all my friends, people think I'm crazy, but I swear by it. I really do think it's kind of helped me have a deeper sleep. So I'll do whatever it takes. If it's an easy tape to put on my mouth, like I'm all about it. So Yes, I agree. I agree. It's like a very simple thing. It's very passive. You don't really have to do anything other than put tape on your mouth and it makes all the difference. Totally. And I love that, you know, this is why we were so excited about having you on the podcast because you kind of just focus on the basics. And I think it's so key. Like you said, sleep, right? Sleep is, I, I know we keep talking about it, but it's so fundamental. And then protein, we talk about this all the time. We're so passionate about protein and hydration, but going to the protein piece, you know, even can I struggle getting that amount in our diet every day? And actually now that I'm, you know, every expert, including you that comes on our podcast, it's a theme that we hear all the time. And when I'm out with friends and family, I'm like, oh my gosh, so many women are under eating protein. It's wild. I've never really realized it until I just started being more mindful about my own intake. But how do you coach your patients who are like, sorry, like that's a lot of protein. How do I get it in my body? And how much should someone who's listening be taking of protein? Like how much should we be taking? I would say on a bare minimum, 30 grams per meal. That's a bare minimum. If you have insulin resistance, it's going to be a little bit more than that. But I think as the bare minimum, we should be shooting for like 25, at least to 30 grams um, per meal. And it is hard. I'm not going to say that's easy at all. It is not something that's easy because I love pasta. I love bread. And it's always easier to find a carb heavy meal even when you're eating out than it is to um, get a protein like centered meal so it's i'm not going to say it's an easy goal to hit it is something that can make such a big difference when you can get there so i always like to anytime i'm thinking about a meal i'm like what's my protein going to be that's the first thing i think about and then everything else i try to um to do around my protein. So what is my protein? Is that gonna be chicken? Is that gonna be a smoothie today? What is happening as far as my protein goes? What? And then I think about, okay, what fiber can I add in? So that's just kind of how I even go through the world of food these days is I just, I, it's, I'm just scanning, what's my protein? That's all I think about. And I like to do little simple hacks too. Don't be afraid to supplement with a protein powder or some collagen here and there when you need it, because it is hard to hit that protein goal every single meal. And, and a lot of people don't love eating that much um, animal-based proteins, and it's hard to get that from plant-based proteins. So if you need to supplement with a protein powder here and there, that is totally fine. I, I really love using like Greek yogurt or even a dairy-free yogurt and throwing some collagen in there to just boost up how much protein you're getting. And then you're also eating something that you like without feeling like you're, you're eating like a bro-y protein-y meal. <laughs> Totally. No, I like you actually just reminded me we add protein and collagen in our yogurt. We have this uh, whey protein that we like. And um, it's such an easy hack to just get your protein in. So I'll probably do that after the this call. But you know, I, I want to sw switch topics a little bit. I actually was 
listening to one of your um, reels that I loved also, where you talked about exercising with your cycle and you had a very unique perspective around hit classes and what it could do to your nervous system. But I'd love to hear your perspective around how you think about exercise throughout a woman's cycle. Yeah, I am very much a proponent for literally every aspect of life to do what feels best for your body. So if you, if that's cycle syncing for you, that's amazing. And I think that's great. If that's not, that's okay too. If you're somebody who's like, if I fall out of my usual every single day routine, even for a day, I'll never get back on. That's okay too. If you need to have some structure, if that's what works for you, do what works for you. My thing is I hear so many people all over social media being like, you can't do HIIT exercises if you have XYZ hormonal issue. And that's just not the case. You can do HIIT exercises. The reason it can be detrimental for some people is because it it is a big load for their nervous system. So if your nervous system can't handle it, you are going to see that tank. You are going to feel tired and fatigued and see a diminish in your progesterone or your estrogen or whatever it might be. So if you're recovering well, if you're prioritizing your sleep, if you are eating enough protein, if you are getting um, the recovery that you need and focusing on your your um, bedtime routine and getting that sympathetic response down, you're going to be fine. You can do a hit exercise every single day if you want, if you are recovering and your body can handle it. But if it's not, then you would benefit from taking it slower. If you are someone who does a hit who does um, a hit workout class and then the next day you're like, I am dragging, I'm really tired, or even that same day, your body is just not able to recover from that as easily as somebody else's who can handle that. So what do you do then? Maybe just do one day a week or two days a week of a HIIT workout. And then the other days you're doing strength training or you're doing some cardio or you're doing some yoga or you're walking or you're doing a combination of all of these. So it's really about listening to your body and then also figuring out how can we get that recovery so that you don't feel so depleted. I love the idea of making it individualized, but also not making it complicated, right? Because it's like you said, if somebody's thinking about okay, I'm in my luteal phase. This is what I can do. This is my follicular phase. This is what I can do. Sometimes that alone is just a barrier. We had uh, Gabrielle Lyon on and she was talking about that. I don't want to create barriers for people because most people are not moving enough as it is, right? Exactly. So like that's so such an important piece. I kind of want to switch to talking about painkillers and uh, pain-free periods. You know, I grew up in a South Asian home where we would only take painkillers or NSAIDs when it was absolutely necessary, like very rarely. Mostly it was like, here, take this turmeric, take this honey, do this, do that. My husband grew up in a house of nurses where it was like, pop a Tylenol, even if you like remotely think that tomorrow you could get a headache. So it was a very big, you know, jarring difference to me when we got together. And then seeing a lot of women around me who would just take a lot of painkillers during their cycle. And it's like, wait a second, if you have to pop pills that much during your period or before your period, something is not right. Like that's not normal. Um, or maybe you've gotten so, <clears throat> you wanna be so numb to that idea that pain could come that you preemptively take a painkiller. So I wanna talk about this. What's the challenge with doing this? And what are some other ways that we can manage pain around our cycle? Yeah, so the number one thing I will say is pain is a symptom and it's telling your body that something is off, right? So if we're just ignoring it and suppressing it with a pain medication, that's we're ignoring something that our body is trying to tell us. So that's the first thing that I'm like, listen to your body because it is, it's basically screaming at you, something is wrong. And you're like, nope, shut up. 
And so it, it just is, you're just dismissing yourself. The second thing is NSAIDs can cause a lot of GI issues. And we know that, we study that, we see that it can be a cause for ulcers and indigestion and H. pylori and other infections. So that then is causing further hormonal issues by affecting your gut and affecting your um your elimination in that way. So if you have ulcers that you're dealing with, then now this is a new inflammatory issue that you're having, your body is having to put out those fires, right? So it's not just that they're these harmless things that you're like, oh, I just, you know, take them for my period pain, but then it's you take them for your migraines, you take them for your headaches, you take them for the other things that are, it just becomes a cascade of events that you're then continuing to suppress and your body is just having to put out all these little fires everywhere. So that's where we really, if we can work on that overall inflammatory load that is happening in our body, we can reduce what's happening with our period pain and our headaches and those PMS symptoms and all the other things that you are popping them for in the first place. Gosh, that was my old life for sure. I mean, I know before I kind of fell into this world of wellness and started seed cycling and before Bia, I literally needed to work. And I was like, I have to take Advil. Like I have no time to deal with these cramps and I would preemptively do it because it was so horrible. And I wish at that time I knew that two things, A, this isn't normal. I thought it was normal. And B, like you could actually live a life where you're not hunched over dealing with cramps because now I am normal, right? I don't have those horrible cramps. I function. I don't need to do painkillers. So if anyone's listening, I just want to share, like I've been there before. I used to proactively take pills because I had to survive for my day to day, but there is so much that you can do to support your hormones. And it is possible for you not to have those horrible PMS symptoms. So I'm just very passionate about this. <laughs> yeah, no, I agree. I also was, I, my doll was my drug of choice because it just took care of everything. I was like, oh great, I'm not as bloated and I don't have pain anymore. And I, I was definitely in that camp of, I would miss school, I would miss classes, I would miss events because I was in so much pain. So, and now I don't have any of that. So it is possible. And I think a lot of people think that like, yeah, it's, it's just some people have that. No, it is possible for all, for most of us, you know, with the exception of things like adenomyosis and really severe endometriosis, you might still have pain, but for the majority of us, we can live a life where we have minimal symptoms around our period or none at all. So what are some alternatives? You know, if people are looking to manage their pain, they're working on their hormones, they don't want to take any NSAIDs anymore. What are some other things they can do to kind of help with that pain around their cycle? So my favorite go-to for pain is raspberry leaf tea. I absolutely love this. I think and I'm also just a lot more conservative with how I treat. And so I always like to start low instead of saying, you need to do all these, take all these supplements. Let's start with a tea. Raspberry leaf tea is so effective for a very large majority of my patients who have pain, um, especially if it's that primary dysmenorrhea and, and we know it's not something secondary like endometriosis, adenomyosis. And I really see that raspberry leaf tea can take away almost 100% of the pain sometimes. So I always like to start with something as simple as tea. You just have to drink it every day. But I've seen that tea work wonders. And then on top of that, castor oil packs. Castor oil packs are so anti-inflammatory. They help with so many different things. I know now in social media, they're getting the light that they finally deserve. <laughs> We've been talking about this for decades, just screaming about castor oil. And now everyone on TikTok is like, hey, have you guys heard of castor oil? And we're like, okay, well, I'm happy it's getting the light. Um, so it, it's really helpful for a lot of the thyroid issues, for gut issues, for liver uh, metabolism, for 
uh, period pain, heavy bleeding, fibroids. You can use it for so many different things. So I love that it's so versatile. It's so simple. And you can do it on a regular basis to help with so many aspects of your hormones. I love raspberry leaf tea. It's like, I know you love it. I've seen you talk about it on your social, but like in pregnant, like later in my pregnancy, I was having it. Like there's so many benefits for raspberry leaf tea. Another great one that I've been hearing about lately, and I'm late to this train, is spearmint tea for excess androgens. Is there truth to this? Yeah, so there is some uh, research to show that that spearmint is really helpful at lowering testosterone and androgens at large. You do need to do higher doses, and it also depends on the person. I have a lot of women with um, PCOS who take the spearmint tea because they've heard that it helps, and they're like, I saw no difference at all. But then you see a lot of women who are like, no, it made all the difference. My acne went away. My hair started growing back. So it kind of depends on the person. It's not one of the ones that I would say – Um, a majority of people feel better on or like everyone who has androgen issues is going to see an improvement with spearmint. But I, there is some research to support that, that spearmint is helpful for androgen excess. And if you're listening to this and you're curious about androgen excess or too much testosterone in your body, we let's talk about some of the symptoms of this, because this is also very common, especially for women who have PCOS. So we have the, you know, excess, uh, hair growth on the face, we might have hair loss on the head. What are some other signs that this could be an issue for someone? The acne, cystic acne, really deep, painful acne, or even acne along your chest and your back could be one. Um, You mentioned the hair loss, irregular cycles where you might have a period and then nothing for like two to three months, or you just don't know when they're going to come. Those are all symptoms of it might be an androgen issue. You know, because like just going back to the patients that you see, right? People who are dealing with PMS, painful periods. I'm sure so many of them, including myself, were on birth control, right? Before they see you, their doctor's telling them, all right, just take the pill. You don't know much about it. You're like, all right, I'm going to do it. You feel great because you have no more cramps. You're living your life. You get off of it in your 20s and 30s, and then all hell breaks loose because your hormones are out of whack. And I'm talking for myself, but I know this happens to a lot of women too. Um, And your, your painful periods are back with a vengeance. So two questions, I guess, do you see this often? And what are your thoughts around birth control when a patient does come to you? And that's kind of their modality that they were on. That's most of the people that I work with. I would say it's very rare that I work with someone who never was on birth control. Um, I myself was on it at some point. And so I think a majority of of us have been on birth control at some point in our lives. I think that's sadly the norm because that's like the number one solution for most hormonal issues is just be on birth control. Um, but, and then I also have a lot of women who are currently on birth control when they come to me and they're like, well, I'm really afraid to get off because prior to birth control, I felt horrible. I was, I was in a lot of pain. I had really bad bleeding, et cetera, et cetera. So I kind of work with where you're at. If you are ready to get off of birth control, we can work in that way. If you're not ready to get off of it just at this moment, then we work on all of the other factors that we can to minimize all the symptoms that you're having or to minimize that when you get off of birth control, you just go straight into having a regular easy period. There is still a lot that we can do while you're on birth control. It doesn't have to be your 100% off of birth control. Um, Uh, that you're 100% off of birth control. And then we start working together. We can work on the sleep pieces. We can work on the nutrition. We can work on your cortisol. We can work on your blood sugar. We can work on the pain. We can work on the inflammation. There's so many things we can still work on while you're on birth control so that when you're off of birth control, you're not anxious about what is that next full natural period going to be like? Am I going to be in pain? 
Am I going to be bleeding through my clothes? Am I going to be feeling really anxious and miserable? So there's so much that you can still focus on regardless of if you have a, a birth control period or a regular period. Do a lot of women come to you? Because my, my challenge with my periods in the past and seed cycling has helped so much with this was I wouldn't get the cramping, but I would get the mood swings, right? I would get the moodiness two days before my period or the day before my period. If I cried, I knew my period was coming the next day. Like I, <laughs> if I got into it with my husband, I knew my period was coming the next yes. day. Yes. So what are your tips for women who experience these like fluctuations in mood around their cycle? Yeah, that, you know, surprisingly, the two biggest things that I see for that are blood sugar and sleep slash stress management. So once we can figure out that nervous system piece and just have a healthy practice that you do on a regular basis to help kind of bring you into that parasympathetic state more often, I see those PMS symptoms completely go away. Um, I had one girl that I worked with in particular who she came to me for pain and PMS and we worked on all of the things, but her stress levels were really high with work. She was like, I am just constantly anxious and stressed at work. My stress is, or my job is very stressful. And so all of her other symptoms went away. Her pain went away. Her, um, uh, yeah, her pain and her PMS were what she came to me for. So her pain went away, but her PMS was still lingering. And the only thing that she hadn't changed was that her job, like she can't just quit her job, right? So that was the only thing that changed. Six months later, she was like, I am just feeling so miserable. She was like, I took off some time from work and I told them that I have to scale back a little bit because I just couldn't handle it. She had two kids too. And she was like, I, I don't feel like I'm the person that I want to be for them. I'm snapping at them and I feel really bad about that. And then anyway, so that was something that she scaled back on. And she's like, my next cycle, I had no PMS symptoms because that was her biggest stressor. So stress plays a huge role in those PMS symptoms, even though it's only happening for a few days before your period starts. And you're like, I know it's a hormonal thing. Yes, it is a hormonal thing, but our nervous system and how we have our kind of day set up is also getting affected in that luteal phase. And so our progesterone can make that worse, right? It makes us crave more sugar because it is, it does affect our insulin and it also can be a factor for our nervous system. I know as soon as I ovulate, my HRV is going to drop. I just, I see it happen every time in my luteal phase. So then I have to be more diligent about the things that I do for my nervous system. I have to be more diligent about, I need to do my yoga because I know that helps my parasympathetic. I know I need to be more structured with my bedtime routine in that phase. So it may be you just have one or two things that you're a little bit more diligent about to help with that nervous system and that blood sugar regulation piece so that you're not feeling so moody or irritable or anxious or low or emotional. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, the stress part of it, I've heard. The blood sugar component, I mean, I can understand kind of now you talking about it, but that's definitely something that I didn't connect completely is that the moodiness could be connected to blood sugar and Jasmine and I, we have a big goal of doing a clinical trial with Thea, with our seed cycling product. And I'm very, very curious because to me, it's like my moodiness is gone. So I'm like, what is the piece here? Like, what is the thing that is helping? And to be able to understand like the nutrition part of it, what is like contributing to maybe more balanced blood sugar? I would love to just see all of that. Um, but that's something to keep in mind for sure. The blood sugar component is uh, I'm going to think about that next time I start to yeah. feel 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Like everyone who's in their luteal phase, who's craving the sugar and the carbs, it's not that you're, um, it is, it is a hormonal issue. So it is, it is related to that progesterone. Anytime, um, you're feeling like you just need a little bit more sugar. I'm not saying don't eat the sugar. I'm just saying get your protein and fiber first and then eat the sugar. And you will feel that those cravings are a lot less. Gosh, it's even a good reminder for me. I mean, right. I'm post ovulation and it's funny. I have an aura and it said my HRV was quite low. And even <laughs> me who track my cycle, I'm like, why is it low? I slept well, I did everything, you know, so it's just a good reminder to be like, okay, this is a phase in your cycle where maybe you need to be a little bit slower do yoga like you did and especially for me blood sugar is so key to my mood like the days if i'm traveling i'm not eating as well i will instantly feel a little bit more emotional a little bit more anxious like it's a very clear thing for me so i'm so passionate about this and i'm so glad you're talking about leading up to your period just how much we should double down on eating blood sugar balancing meals because it is so, so helpful. So it's just a good reminder um, in that phase <laughs> to help. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I'm like the first person my husband knows if I'm hangry, it's probably because I ate like a piece of toast from breakfast and I skipped the protein and it's just a cascade, right? At that point, the way we start off our day, if we're like chug some coffee, eat some toast, then it just sets us up for like, all right, what then kind of Right. Then you're going to be seeking more of the carbs because you didn't get enough of the protein to keep your blood sugar stable. So now you're hitting those crashes. I feel the same way. Yesterday I was like, why am I so irritable today? And I was like, oh, didn't have enough protein. I just, I know it's a direct correlation between my mood and how I'm going to interact with the people around me if I don't get enough protein. Absolutely. Well, I know we're coming up on our time and I want to uh, end with our final question. Yeah, this is a fun question that we've been doing with all of our experts and it doesn't have to be super serious. It could be funny. Um, but what are th three things as a doctor that you would just not do to your body? Um, I think the first one is no smoking or vaping. I feel like that is one that a lot of people talk about. So definitely I would never do that. Um, we know all the negative side effects of that. And so that is absolutely one I would never do. The second one, the second and third one actually are stuff that we've already talked about today. Um, one is, uh, two is neglect hydration, right? Hydration is so important. And I think it is, especially with how many giant water bottles we all have available to us these days, <laughs> as you've seen me just constantly zipping this, I feel like it shouldn't be hard to just get your water. You, I really want you to focus on drinking more water, adding in some electrolytes and just see the difference it can make in your life. So do not, I would never neglect my hydration, especially living in the desert. I'm like, I need to constantly be hydrated. Otherwise I will shrivel up. And then the third one is going to be sleep. I'm never not going to prioritize sleep. I will happily leave any party early to go to sleep and not have that affect my, my um, day the next day. Because I know when I go to sleep too late, I, I don't get good sleep. I feel off for an entire day. So I'm always going to put sleep above staying out late. <laughs> Yeah. And kids are the perfect excuse for that, right? It's like, I gotta go home. My kid I, I don't have that excuse. I stood up leave and I feel bad. I'm like, I gotta go because I have work. I wish I had a kid. I'd be like, I gotta go. She wakes up, he wakes up early. Like that's so funny. I've done I've done this since college. Like I remember being 19 and all my friends were like, You're going to bed. I'm like, Yeah, I'm tired. Bye. Smart, <laughs> and they were like, smart. Can you like you're literally 19? I'm like, I don't care. I've done this since I was a kid because I just sleep has always been so important to me. I don't know why that started because my parents never necessarily prioritized sleep. So I, it, I just must have been something that came to me that I knew this was an important factor for me. 
Totally. Yeah. I, if, if I don't sleep my whole like next four days, right. It's like a hangover almost. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, I love those. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation and talking about all these really important topics. These are a lot of issues that women who listen to the podcast deal with. So I think they'll really appreciate hearing this. So thank you for your time. Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, of course. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.